We're in Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28, verse 1, God's word. Word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God. Although you make your heart like the heart of God, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. By your wisdom and understanding, you've acquired riches for yourself. You've acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you've increased your riches. Your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of God. Therefore, behold, I'll bring strangers upon you, the most ruthless, ruthless of the nations. They will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They'll bring you down to the pit, and you will die the death of those who are slain. In the heart of the sea, will you still say, I am a god, in the presence of your slayer, though you are a man and not a god, in the hands of those who wound you? You will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up the lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, topaz, diamond, beryl, onks, jasper, lapis, lazuli, turquoise, emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings, the sockets, was in you on the day you were created. They were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways for the day you were created until the right unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you by the multitude of your iniquities. In the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified. You will cease to be forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you for Christ's sake and in Christ. We approach you in Christ. We thank you that the words of judgment are no longer applicable to us. We have been people who have been lifted up in our heart because of our supposed wealth and supposed wisdom and supposed beauty. But you, Holy Spirit, have shown us to to reckon ourselves rightly as sinners. And you alone, Lord Jesus Christ, are our wisdom our riches and our beauty. And gracious God, would you teach us even through the promise of judgment on this proud king and even on the proud cherub that you are a God who hates pride 
and you desire that all men would humble themselves before you. Teach us these things, Lord. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. There's a twofold division in this chapter. It might show in your, the Bible that you have in front of you. Verses 1 through 10 is one section, and verses 11 through 19, I would argue he's speaking to the earthly king of Tyre, and then I would argue behind the figure of the earthly king, he's speaking to the devil, who's the anointing, anointed, anointing cherub, um, the spiritual king of Tyre. And there is a promise of judgment upon each. But we'll just walk through this passage. Let's consider, if you remember, so where are we? We're in um, Ezekiel 28. If you remember from last week, we took two whole chapters last week, chapter 26, chapter 27. And then chapter 28, one through what we just read, what was it, verse 19, deals with God's promise of judgment upon the, the, the city or the people of Tyre. And if you remember that Tyre was one of the prominent, prominent cities of the Phoenicians, Sidon is another prominent city of the Phoenicians. Um, we mentioned last week, as we'll see here with this promise of judgment, that the, the people of, of, um, of Tyre are Gentiles, they're non-Jews. The place that I go to to consider what a non-Jew is spiritually, which is to say ultimately or really, is Ephesians 2, 12 through 21. With the Apostle Paul, we'll talk about us as formerly Gentiles, but now in Jesus Christ we've been brought near, that the dividing wall has been taken down, and that there's no longer Jew and Gentile, we're one new person in Jesus. But in that little section, he says, this is what a Gentile is. Um, they're not Jews, they're not a member of the household of faith, they're strangers to the law, strangers to the gospel, strangers to the covenant of grace, the covenant of promise, um, stranger to forgiveness of sins, they're in the world and without God. That's a Gentile. And so this is, ultimately, this is what a Gentile is. These people are Gentiles. And so they were in the world without God and without a covering for their sin, which means that when God looks at them, he sees them in their sin. When God looks at us, even though we still sin, he doesn't see us in our sin. He sees us in our sin bearer, Jesus Christ. Again, not a license to sin. So when we're looking at this, this is going to be a denunciation of pride. And for many reasons. And we saw this morning the promise of judgment upon those who lie or the correction of liars. Every single one of us has been proud since we've been converted. We've lied since we've been converted. We've been hypocritical since we've been converted. In the Lord Jesus, if we have true and saving faith, all of those things are cast in the sea of forgetfulness. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now, these, this, this word of denunciation isn't meant to convert it's not to drive these particular, this king or the devil, certainly, to, to, to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin. It's pure judgment. This is a pure judgment to the king and to the spiritual king. But to us, it teaches us what we have been freed from in Jesus Christ. So this is here for our instruction, though the judgment to the true believer is not applicable. This is what Jesus, Jesus has taken, the judgment. Um, so that, that's what we're looking at. They're, they're Gentiles in the world without sin. And I, I just want to see the, the horrible predicament. Sometimes we were raised, raised modern Americans, particularly if you were raised in a church, a real Christian church. Your mother and father were Christians, went to a real Christian church, and you've known Jesus from the time that you could even remember your thoughts. We sometimes lose the, 
the horror of the predicament of being in the world without God, the horror of being an unbeliever. These people are dead in their sins and trespasses. And the difficulty with being dead in their sins and trespasses in this instance, this Gentilish people, is they're blind and they don't even know it. They're dead and they think they're alive. They're blind and they think they can see. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing to think that you're spiritually, spiritually alive, that you're okay before God, when in fact you're spiritually dead. And um, Jesus says concerning a number of different people or entities that for such a person, Job says this as well, for such a person to be in the world, have physical life, yet not have spiritual life in God, is better to never have been born. And I would argue for these people, if they die unconverted, and the better part of them, I'm sure, died unconverted, it would have been better never to be uh, never, never to be born. Now, that's who they were. They're Gentiles. Now, a number of places in our text repeat what we've seen specifically in, um, in chapter 20, 27, maybe some in 26, but certainly chapter 27. You see here that the king of Tyre says he's wealthy, and because of his wealth, he's become proud. And the devil, uh, and then the, the king of Tyre is a picture of the devil in the second half, or vice versa. His beauty, he's handsome, and you see all the riches that he's decked out with. So the wisdom has made this, this king proud. The wealth has made this, this king proud. Let's speak to the wealth business. It was last week that we spent predominantly our time with God's denunciation of what I, I referred to as wealth worship. All wealth is not wrong. All wealthy people are not separate from God in Christ. Uh, Abraham was wealthy. David was wealthy. Um, it was a wealthy man. It was a rich man that um, Jesus was buried in his tomb. So it, it's not a sin to be wealth, uh, wealthy. Uh, wealth in itself, it's inanimate. It can't be morally right or morally wrong. Only moral creatures can more, be morally right or morally wrong. And there are only two kinds of creatures that are moral creatures, angels and men. So stuff is not moral or amoral. It's when we use it unlawfully that we make it sinful. And so it's the love of money that's the root of all sorts of evil. It's not money that's the root of all evil. Sometimes people say that. It's, it's, it's not money that's the root of all evil. We need money to eat. We need it to pay our rent. We need it to drive, put gas in our... So those things are necessary. Unbelievers, believers. It's when we love it. It's when it gets into our hearts. And so when God gives us a measure of wealth, part of the prayers that we should pray is, Oh God, thank you for this. Please, Lord God, don't make this get... Keep me from having this wealth get into my heart. So, but, but wealth is exceedingly deceitful, and our flesh is prone to deify the wealth, to make it our little God, our little idol. Jesus says, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So whether you're fully devoted for Christ, that's your heart, that's your treasure. And if your heart is always absorbed on your money, that's your God, that's your treasure. And so these particular people were very wealthy people. And because of their wealth, they were, worth, they, they were prone to worship their wealth because they had a lot of it. And then we're going to see that, that the king and subsequent the people... Because they're wealthy people, they were, they were tempted to become proud. And they elevated themselves above other people. And they elevated themselves above uh, um, e even God. That's another temptation that comes along with being proud. There's a place in the Bible, I want to say Proverbs, where it says, The poor man answers meekly, but the, the rich man answers harshly. And, and that's very true. If, you, if you've watched people... Um, 
not always, but when a poor person approaches a less poor person or a person of a superior position and they know they don't have the wherewithal and they go to the person with the wherewithal, I'm sorry, please help me. Okay, thank you. Oh, um, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And the rich man doesn't talk like that. The rich man comes along and says, I, uh, I have the power. And he elevates himself. This is a James chapter 2. And so these people are Gentiles and they are wealthy. And they're, they're the sea-going people. They're sea traders. Our country is very, very wealthy. And um, even with the difficulties that we're having currently, sociopolitically, culturally, economically, what is, um, what's inflation? Zero percent? I'm only kidding. What are we running at? Like, what, eight or nine or something like that? Even with that, we are an exceedingly wealthy people. And then has that wealth prompted us as a modern American people to be proud or haughty in the way that we interact. I would argue perhaps probably. So Gentile people, separate from God, they're very, very, very wealthy people. Another thing that tempts this king of Tyre to pride is because of his wealth, they're militarily very, very strong. And we learned in one of the previous chapters, I forget which one, 26 or 27, one of the reasons this small, we mentioned they're 125 miles long and I don't know what they are, 25 miles wide. They're not, it's long and skinny. Not a big place. How could a skinny little people, um, uh, the, the Phoenician region, how could they become a military powerhouse? Because they had a ton of money. And they hired foreign mercenaries. And what's interesting with that is um, there, there's, a, there's a song that money can't buy you love. Money can buy you a lot. It can buy you a lot. Um, it can't buy it can't buy you love. It can't buy you reconciliation with God. But it can buy a lot, and people will do a lot of things for money. And so there's nothing new under the sun. If you have a, a ton of money, you can buy mercenaries right now, and they will fight for you. And so here is this rich country, very very small, but very very rich. They said, you know what? If you have a boatload of money, and you have a good anthropology, you know what other human beings are like, even if you're an unbeliever. What's the next thing that you want to do with your money? You want to buy a bunch of fire-breathing dragons to fight for you. Why? Because you know the nature of man. Because you're a man. You would kill people for their money. People will kill you for their money. So they hire people. It's, a, it's an interesting thing what people will do for their money. So they're Gentiles. They're very wealthy. They're very physically, militarily powerful. And then all through these three chapters speaking against the people of Tyre, these Phoenicians, God will tell them what he's been busy telling the Jews for the first 24 chapters. These Gentiles are sinners. They're lawbreakers before Almighty God. And I'm going to say something. It's, it, it's kind of silly to say, but I'm going to say it. When God in the major prophets, this is a major prophet, or the minor prophets, he says to Edom, O Edom, or O Moab, or O Ammon, or O Philistia, or, or that, or, or, O Tyre. He's not speaking against the dirt. He's not speaking against the geographic spot that this, this is a city. And this is a city. So when he's denouncing judgment, it's, it's, if God were to say, O America, I'm going to judge you, which I think actually to some degree, we are under the judgment of Almighty God because we provoke him constantly. When God judges a nation, it's not the dirt. It's not the longitude and latitude. It's the people. 
we've, we've mentioned it's the people that sin. Cats and dogs don't sin. Dirt doesn't sin. People sin. So for the first 24 chapters, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Judea, uh, oh, oh, Israel. For 24 chapters, he says Jews are what? They're sinners. And they need a savior. And they're living contrary to, to the life that they profess to believe in. So they're sinners. And now from chapter 25 to chapter 32, he says to the Gentiles, is he talking to seven Gentile nations? He says to the Gentiles, Oh, you Gentiles, you're sinners. It's an amazing thing. We love to think, well, my folks came over the Mayflower. My folks were picking peat uh, in Ireland. Your folks were doing this. Somehow I come from better stock than you. Moral stock. Religiously, morally better stock. It's what our brother read from J.C. Rao. I worked through the Book of Holiness, I don't know, three or four times. I I just worked through it um, in my own personal worship. One of the things I love about J.C. Rao is he's talking about the basics. This is Christianity 101. And J.C. Rao says, if I, he, he's keen. I'm, I'm in a new series, uh, a sermon series, uh, Old Pass. And there he'll say, even the New Zealanders, I don't know what it is about New Zealanders, but he constantly is talking. He said, you can go and see the New Zealanders. You can see this, folks. And he refers to the Hindus instead of H-I-N-D-U. He'll, he uses O-O, which I think is funny, different spelling. But he says, go anywhere. And what do you find? find sinners man left alone I don't care if your folks came over on the Mayflower and if they did come over on the Mayflower I know what they were (laughs) they were sinners that came over on the Mayflower they were lawbreakers they were people that got proud of their money they got proud of their looks they got proud of their wisdom they worshipped wealth they worshipped themselves they deified them just like these people so Jews and Gentiles are in the same predicament. Now to Jews, there's an added, to much is given, much is required. They have the means of grace. They're responsible to repent and believe. Everyone's responsible to repent and believe. But God has given to the Jews especially um, uh, the means of grace. So, but we're all in the same predicament. And the answer for, for, for the first 24 chapters is Christ. The answer for the people of Tyre is Christ. Now, as I mentioned, This is not a gospel passage. What we're looking at, this is a judgment passage. And when God says to the king of Tyre, 1 through 10, I am going to judge you. And and the judgment for the king of Tyre's sin is death. I am going to bring you to death. I'm going to destroy you for your sin against me. That's judgment. This is not John 3.16. It's not a gospel. When God tells Ezekiel, go to the king and tell him this. You're a sinner and you're going to die for it. You you, You think you're me. You think you're above me. And I'm going to exact my judgment on you. This isn't meant to convert him. Some people are under the misunderstanding, I think. And I'm very evangelical. I think I'm much warmer and gentler than I was when I first started 20 years ago for lots of reasons. But many people say when, when the word of God goes out, it's always meant to convert. It's always meant to save people. That's not true, beloved. That is not true. Read your Bible. Even, Ezekiel, even Isaiah chapter 6, that evangelical Christians take wrongly. Here I am, send me. Go read Isaiah's call. Isaiah's call is not to the Gentiles. Isaiah's call is to the Jews. And Isaiah's call is not primarily a gospel call. It's a judgment call. And God says to to Isaiah, I want you to preach and the better part of the 90% of the people are not going to believe you and I'm going to judge them for it. And then Isaiah says, well, how long do I have to do this? This judgment work. He says, oh, there'll be a little remnant. It'll be a stump, a, a tithe. He uses the word tithe. I'm going to leave just a little stump of believers, but pretty much everybody else is not going to believe you, and I'm going to judge them for judge them for it. So this word here 
is not meant to convert the king of Tyre. It's meant to judge him. And then, moreover, when he gets around to speak against the devil, the word here to the devil is not meant to convert the devil. Origin was wrong. There have been a few guys in church history that thought, you know, God is love, and God is love. And they say philosophically, and I understand why philosophically, because we can't understand eternal, eternal punishment or torment. They say philosophically, because God is love, even the devil will be converted some, in some day. This is origin. I don't think so. If the Bible, if words mean anything, that's not true. Eternal heaven is eternal heaven. Eternal hell is eternal hell. I understand that people, even very, very smart people, C.S. Lewis couldn't deal with eternal hell. I understand. It's a horrible thing. But God means to judge both the king and certainly the devil. And it's eternal. And so this is a, a, a word to Gentile sinners, wealthy, powerful uh, sinners, and we see the common problem. Now, um, we mentioned the, 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 the chapter division. We mentioned the danger of the love of money. He says it early on in our chapter. It's because of your wealth that your heart grew proud. There is a danger to that. And it's not just rich people that fall in that danger of becoming proud. It's harder when you don't have any money. But just because you're poor doesn't mean you don't love money. You can be poor and love money. You just want to get it. But when you get it, it, it can have the, 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 the tendency to make a heart be proud. And so what we're looking at here in chapter 28 is the denunciation of pride. And not pride in a theoretical concept. And we've talked about this before. Judgment's not going to be judgment against like murder in the abstract, adultery or fornication in the abstract, pride in the abstract. We, we say this all the time. Well, people say it. Well, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Yes and no. Be careful with that. It's yes and no. To those in Jesus Christ, yes, indeed, he does hate our sin and love us in Jesus Christ. But be careful. Don't press that beyond where it should go. Because God is not going to punish sin in the abstract. When people end up in the eternal place of punishment, it's, it's, not, it's not pride in the abstract that's being punished. It's the proud person. Does that make sense? So it's the agent that's committing the act that God is denouncing. And God here is promising to judge people for their sin. And when I say judge, we've been looking at this all along. We looked at it somewhat this morning. When I say judge, I mean two things. When God tells Ezekiel, speak against the king of Tyre, tell the king of Tyre essentially that he's a sinner. And then speak against the devil and tell the devil that he's a sinner. Um, now, people say, there's a, there's, well, I, let me back up. There's a right judging and a wrong judging. I, I said it this morning from Matthew chapter 7. The two things that Christians are prone to hear from non-Christians is, you're a hypocrite. You're a play actor. You say you believe in Jesus, but we still see you sin. Well, of course, that doesn't make us a hypocrite. That If we're true believers, that makes us true believers who aren't in heaven. They hated Jesus. So, by the way, when people call you a hypocrite for being uh, believe, uh, believing in Jesus and you still sin, they hated Jesus. They told Jesus that he was a friend of hookers and drunkards and so on. And so don't think, well, you know, yeah, well, I do sin, and, and that's why they're picking on me. Oh, no, they picked on Jesus, and he was perfect. They couldn't find anything. So we still sin, and so it's easy. And even if they can't find something, they're going to make it up. But the other passage is Matthew 7, Thou shalt not judge. Let me just speak to that. Because this is a judgment passage. And Ezekiel is told by God, I want you to tell him I'm judging him. So this is a human being 
saying to another human being, you are wrong, you're a sinner, and God is going to condemn you. Is that judgmental? Yes, yes, it is. Now, how do we reconcile that with Matthew chapter 7? This is why we need to be good Bereans. We need to be students of the Bible. If you cherry pick and lucky dip, and you can have your pet verse, you can make the Bible say all sorts of nutty stuff. You can make the Bible contradict the Bible all over the place. Thou shalt not judge. I guess boys can marry boys and girls can marry girls because I can't judge. Well, that's ridiculous. That's pitting the word of God against the word of God. So we need to understand that the Bible will interpret the Bible. The, less, the more clear passages that are related to the less clear passages, they help us understand the Bible. So in Matthew chapter 7, when it says, Thou shalt not judge, it's in context. It's hypocritical judgment. It's, it's hypersensorious judgment. It's the person with a big old log of sin sticking out of his eye, saying to his fellow brother or sister in Jesus with a little splinter of the same sin. Let's say the guy is, I don't know what he's doing. He's a liar. And he's lying up a storm. And he goes to the person that says, I don't know, they say, he hears them say one lie. And they say, I can't believe you're lying. Liars don't inherit the kingdom of God. You're going to go to hell for that. Well, and Jesus says, take the big old log of sitting out of your eye and then tell your brother not to sin. So it's that kind of judgment. And then he goes on to say, don't throw your pearls before swine. You need to know who's a swine. What are the pearls? So there's a right judging and a wrong judging. So all right and wrong is not wrong judging. Does that make sense? Because you have to throw the Bible away. You have to throw the law of God away. You'd have to throw the gospel away. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. Is that narrow? Is that judgmental in a certain sense? Yes. Rightly understood. Make sense? So here, God tells the prophet, go to uh, the king of Tyre and tell him that he's wrong and I'm going to judge him. When we say judge, or God tells Ezekiel to say this, we mean two things. We mean that God tells Ezekiel to first tell the king of Tyre, one, that the king of Tyre is wrong. Wrong according to a certain standard of morality, of rightness, of wrongness. And what is the standard that God lays against all human beings to determine whether they're sinners or not sinners? What is that standard that he applies to them, that he's applying to this king? It's the law of God. And what this teaches a Gentile, it doesn't matter. Some people talk about the fourth commandment. We fight about keeping the Sabbath and all those things. The fourth commandment is the fourth commandment. And so the fourth commandment is applicable to the Christian. The fourth commandment is applicable to the Buddhist. It's the Ten Commandments given to man as a moral creature. It doesn't change. And so when someone says, I'm a believer, God doesn't apply the Ten Oh, no, he applies the Ten Commandments. They're God's moral standard for right or wrong for all human beings. And it's outside of man. It's above man. And God applies it to man. So when we say judge, we mean God is looking at this man who is still in the first Adam. He lays the law of God against him and says, you're wrong. You're a sinner. Now, unbelievers can't stand that because they think, well, wait a minute. There's nothing outside of me. There's no standard by which I'm judged. Oh, no. This guy says, I am God. I do what I want. This is every man doing what's right in his own eyes. Utterly wrong. All people that think there's no standard above me that will judge. Oh, no, you're wrong. On the last day, there's going to be a standard applied to you. And God will say to you, hey, by the way, you're wrong on that area. Oh, I was wrong. Yes, that's the first part of the judgment. 
So God comes to the sinner and says, here's the standard. Our brother read it again from J.C. Rao. We, we sin constantly without word and deed. It doesn't matter what we think. The law has no mercy. We, we forget this as Christians because we're so, we're so gospel-centered, which is right to be gospel-centered. We're so thinking grace, love, mercy. And I, I've, been really, I've been really reveling in the goodness of God this week. I had a great week in the Lord. And the Lord used me with some folks not in the church and to just minister Christ to them. And I was just so thankful. I was just so thankful this week that God would send me here to this person, there to another person, people really hurting. And I could minister forgiveness and mercy and love. And I just, I was so thankful to be alive. I was thankful to be used by the Lord in that way. And we should think that way. But the law doesn't provide mercy. What's that little uh, John Bunyan, the law says, you know, live, do or die. But it's only the gospel that gives us wings to fly or something like that. So the law says we're right or wrong. And the second thing we mean by judgment is the execution of the sentence. The first part is right or wrong before the law. And the second thing is the execution of the, the sentence, the condemnation part. And so God says to the, the first king, the earthly king, I'm, I'm going to kill you. You are going to die. And it's the physical death, and then the harbinger, that physical death is the harbinger, the herald of the second death, which is eternal perdition, under these figures of fire. So that's what we mean by, the, by judgment. God will condemn. All sinners found in their sin are going to be condemned. And when we get around to the judgment being passed against the devil, we'll see uh, what Jesus says in Luke. I'll, maybe I'll bring this up later. But he's cast from heaven. He's judged as wrong. Pride was found in his heart. He's cast from heaven. And ultimately, the condemnation of the devil will be that he's cast into the lake of fire. That's the condemnation. So judgment, wrong according to the Bible, wrong according to the law, and then finally the condemnation part. And all of that will be, I will just say in context, for pride. We, we've talked about it before. America is a licentious people. Sexual immorality. I don't know why this is true. I really don't know why it's true. Um, it, to, it seems to be one of the strongest sins. I, I don't know why it is. It seems, it has people, I don't know. It seems to be, if I, when I look around at what, what the people of God suffer with, that's a big one. And men, it plagues men, I don't know about women, but it plagues men to no end. And I pray to God, like, why does this seem like the worst thing in the world? It's like a, like a power that, like kryptonite. I, I don't know that. But, and so we, I tend to think, wow, that's, that's the worst. That's the worst. Pride. We looked at this morning, lying. Ananias and Sapphira were, were given the death penalty for lying. And look at what they were lying about. Was it $100 that you sold the property? Yeah, it was 100 Here's 50 They lied. And they, they, they died for that. And it's not immorality. No, not immorality. They just lied. And now, what, what are we looking at? Pride. This is really pride. What do you think of pride? What do you think of pride? Like pride? All of us. All of us. Even when we think... I, I, it's weird. We're a weird mixture. I'm a weird mixture. We can think, I'm nothing. I'm a bozo. I can't do it. Oh, I'm nothing. And then in the next moment, I'm the best nothing you've ever looked at. I'm the best bozo you've ever seen. We are the weirdest mixture. We can be brokenhearted and sorrowful, but in the very next nanosecond, 
we're looking down at someone and saying, well, you're lower than me and I'm higher than you. And God owes me. It's, it's a weird thing. But for pride, God says, for pride, I'm going to exact the death penalty. It's a frightening thing. This is why I started with the gospel first. No condemnation for us. Jesus has paid what we owe for our pride. Jesus has paid what we owe for our lying. And as well as our sexual uncleanness, he's paid for what we owe. So the earthly king, the denunciation of the earthly king, we're not told his name. He's anonymous, but we're told his, his moral character. And we've mentioned his moral character. And he's a proud fellow. And he's, he, he, he's called a king or leader or prince. Now, he's not a king of a nation. He's the leader of a particular city, but it's an important city. But when we think of king or leader or whatever you want to call him, let's put ourselves in the context. This is an ancient oriental culture. He's, he's not like an American governor uh, or, or even an American president. These men had not unlimited power, but they had massive power, massive influence. And so think of this man. He is immensely powerful where he lives. He is the biggest fish in the smallest pond. So he's the king of this particular place. And because of that, and because of his wealth, he grows uh, proud. Now, God tells Herod to go, uh, Ezekiel to go talk to him. Now, I can't be dogmatic here. I don't know whether God allowed Ezekiel to just preach the sermon. I don't know where he would preach it, or whether God required, um, because it's not far away. I mean, we're talking a couple hundred miles. I don't know whether God um, required Ezekiel to go to the king of Tyre. He could have gone to the king of Tyre and said, King of Tyre, I have a message from Jehovah for you. And here's the message. You're a proud sinner and God's going to kill you for it. Now, God has required his servants to do just that. You remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist went up to Herod and said, Herod, you see that wife you had? Is she your brother's wife? You're committing adultery and you're committing incest and you can't have her. And what happened to John the Baptist? They chopped his head off. Remember? So when you, th when you look at this, you think, well, who would... Nowadays, people like young people, I want to be a minister. Oh, yeah, because you get to eat chicken and play golf. I want to be a minister. Th this is like trying to sign up to be a minister in Saudi Arabia. How many guys are like, you know what? I'm going to seminary so I can have the best parking spot in the church in Saudi Arabia. Because you're going to have the lifespan of a very small, small insect. Here God says to his man, go to this guy who kills people for sport and tell him he's a sinner and God's going to kill him for his sin. Now the Lord Jesus Christ does say to his servants, don't be afraid. They are going to haul you before these kind of people. In my providence, I'm going to have you arrested and get hauled before governors and kings for my namesake, think of the Apostle Paul. This is part of God's calling on his minister. And when you stand before them and you tell them these things, is for a judgment against them. The law, the gospel. And then God, Jesus tells his servants, don't worry about what you're going to say. It's the spirit of my father who's going to speak in you. So we, we talked about it this morning. Real Christianity comes with a cost. Wherever you are at, whether you're a minister or not a minister, Really owning Jesus, really owning the truth in an antichrist world, which we're in an antichrist world, um, it really comes with a cost. And sometimes God does require us to take a stand for the truth. So he tells this man to tell the king, and I, I can't imagine it, but he, he, he does. 
And then God tells um, Ezekiel to tell the king what we saw this morning, that he knows the hearts of people. He, he says, your heart has grown proud. In your heart, you think you're God. We saw this with Ananias and Sapphira. Why have you lied in your heart? This is a, to me, it's a terrifying thing. We t- I use words like omnipresence, omnipotence, the infinitude, eternality. They make me sound smart. They're big. I know quasi what they are conceptually. But when you start thinking about it, wait a minute, Psalm 139. God is everywhere. Jonah, when you're pitched in a, in a fish, he's there. He's looking at you. He knows everything, every thought. If we, if we really believe that, we probably couldn't even put our pants on in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> he sees everything. I mean, every untoward thought, every untoward deed, every untoward emotion, God sees. He says to Ananias and Sapphira, I see that you're hypocrites. I see you're lying. He says to this pagan king, I know your heart. This is where people, we get all bent out of shape. Who are you to judge me? No one can judge me. You don't know anything about anything. And God comes along and says, I know everything about everything. And I know everything about you. And you're proud. You actually think that you are me, that you're God. This is the big lie of the devil. God says to Eve, did God really say? And plus, you don't need to listen to God because you can be God. Here is this guy who comes along in his heart and because of his wealth, he grows proud. And in his pride, this is a Psalm 73, this is rich people who become proud in their riches and their wealth and their beauty and all of these things. They say, you know what? God is not God. I am God. I mentioned this, guys, before. There's a, there's, a, there's a poem called Invictus. I used to know the guy's name who wrote it. Invictus. It's obnoxious. It means invincible. Timothy McVeigh quoted Invictus, the bomber, quoted Invictus, the poem, said, I'm the master of the de- my own destiny, I'm the captain of my soul, as they were shooting him in the arm with, with drugs to kill him, as they executed him. It's an obnoxious poem, but it's man. It's man saying to God, I am God. You will not conquer me. I am God. And God says back to this man, what? Oh, oh, you're God. And it's actually sarcastic. You're smarter than... Um, you're wiser than Daniel. And when Daniel could understand dreams, did Daniel take the 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 um, did Daniel take it to himself or did he give God the glory? Even Daniel said, you know what? The only reason I have any insight is God gives it to me. And so God mocks this king and he says, Oh, you're smarter than Daniel. But you think you're God. But you're gonna die like what? A man. And you think, well, that seems pretty harsh of God. We need to have God's view of God. Mercy in Christ, love of God in Christ, but God is not to be trifled with. We saw it this morning. We need a, we need a, we need a full or picture of God. It's a fearful thing to the falls in the hands of the hands of the living God. God hates pride. It's obnoxious to him. Pride says to God, I am God and you are not. Beloved, this is a Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar thought he was a god, remember? He made a little statue of himself, a big statue. And he said to everybody, everybody, I'm God, bow down to me. And what did God say to him? I'm going to show you that you're not God. You see that cow out there? You're going to be living with him for seven years. And at the end of seven years, I'm going to have mercy on you. Are you still a God? You still think you're a God, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar? And what did Nebuchadnezzar say? I'm not God. You're God. 
and so God denounces this particular person. We learn it. It's meant to, to, to inform us. And then God looks at the second half. And if you look at this, he does something very similar in the book of Isaiah, where God, under the figure of an earthly king, speaks against the devil who's behind the earthly king, which is, which is as I say, Satan. Where, where, where can I find it? Uh, Isaiah 14. It's, the, it's a similar passage. He speaks to an earthly king, but really he's speaking to the devil. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Um, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you'll be thrust down to hell to the recesses of the pit. So God says to the devil who is moving this antichrist leader the king of tyre i'm going to throw you down even as i throw you down from heaven i'm going to eventually cast you down into hell this is important for us there's a warfare going on that we we just see i don't know the ukraine um ukraine russia democrat republic we just it just looks like oh men fighting other men no behind all of this is a spiritual warfare and behind the people that are against Christ and Christ's gospel and holiness and for sin, behind them is the fallen master. And God says to the human agent, you're going to die for your sin. And God says to the angelic angel, and you're going to die for your sin eternally. And I mentioned, this is not to convert the king. This is not to convert the devil. This is pure judgment to them. So what benefit would it have to us? Remember, He's writing to a people, I would argue that they're the remnant of believers. Only believers believe the Bible. I know it seems redundant. Only believers actually believe the Bible. They tremble at the threatenings. They rejoice at the promises. This is written for the believers. People that go, wow, he's eventually going to put down all proud antichrist kings. And then he's eventually going to throw the devil himself into the pit of fire forever and ever. That's for the comfort of God's people. If it was not for the God that we worship, we would be destroyed. Unbelievers would kill us and they would steal us from God. If, if, un, if unbelieving man was as powerful as unbelieving man thinks he is, or the devil think, is as powerful as the devil thinks he is, we would be lost. We'd be physically dead. We'd be spiritually gone. We would be gone. This is meant to warn the Antichrist that you're not going to win. I win. You're not God, man. You're not God, Satan. God says, I'm God. This God is against his and our enemies, and he's for us. No antichrist king, no antichrist governor, no antichrist human being, no Satan will ever snatch us from the hand of our Lord Jesus Christ because Christ is the king of kings and lord of lords. And someday when he comes back, all of these antichrists, these enemies will be pushed aside and it will be the little flock of the Lord Jesus Christ, the people that think, how can I make it through this devil-filled world with enemies around every corner? How can I make it through? We'll make it through because Christ perseveres and preserves his people because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.